Old Testament is Exodus chapter 16. It's page 58 if you're using that blue Bible. Exodus 16. This is early in Israel's history. Israel has been set free from its hostage situation just a month before. One month before. And here they are in Exodus 16. And one of the things you notice very quickly when you get down to verse 3 is that in their heads and in their hearts, they're still slaves. In their heads and in their hearts, they're still slaves. And so, Exodus 16 They set out from Elim, and and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. They left on the 14th day of the first month. Here it is one month and one day later, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the, Lord, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Yahweh, the Lord, said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt in the morning, and in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You should have heard the slave is still there. Those set free. Oh, so much better to go back to slavery where we had lots of food. This liberty thing is scaring the snot out of us. We don't know how to live in liberty. So you see it there. Well, now we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, which is page 983 in that blue Bible. As we continue our series in Colossians, getting on with the gospel. Not leaving the gospel behind, not shoving the gospel in a closet or on a bookshelf. Getting on with the gospel. So we're just going to pick up right where we left off, starting at verse 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated in a hostile mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What I've read to you from Exodus and Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, who did the impossible by means of the impossible, May what we hear today fill us up. May it go home with us. May it walk down the street with us. 
and move us more and more in your direction. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of a worship guide with some space there for you to write notes. So last week, as I pointed out, that starting at verse 15, verse 15 through verse 23, what we see is we see gospel grounding that has been laid down for us in who Jesus is and what he is doing. It's deep-rooted turf. I gave you the illustration of the football game we watched where part of the football field was only laid in sod, and so every time a runner would get the ball and turn and get ready to go down the field, the the turf, the sod would pick up, and he'd fall flat on his face. It didn't matter what team was there. They all did the same thing, right? But this is like Osage grass. That guy has like three three foot deep roots, and it just doesn't go anywhere. Weathers all kinds of drought, and this gospel grounding that Paul's relaying to us here is deep-rooted turf that's under our feet so that we can get on with the gospel. That's what Paul's doing here. And so here, verse 21 through 23, Paul moves on to tell us even more of what Jesus has done. And so I I encourage you to have your Bibles open to Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Now you have to understand, we've got to begin with the bad news so that we can be certain of the good news. And that's where Paul begins. He starts with the bad news so that we can be certain of the good news. And verse 21 is the bad news. We were rebels. Paul, here in verse 21, burrows down into the dark and dreary reality of our condition, and it just isn't pretty. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, it's just not pretty. It's all bleak. And you who once were. Now, it may not be true of us or them now at this point, but sometimes, my friends, we need to remember where we came from so we can really appreciate where we are now. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is doing here. You need to remember where you came from so you can appreciate what you have now. That's verse 21. Now, you've heard me quote this sentence before from fellow named Cornelius Plantinga, so I'm going to quote it again just because it's worth quoting. When the Christian life goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin and grace. When the Christian life goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin or grace. And that's what's going on in the Colossian church, it seems. And behind the trouble that we're going to start getting into and seeing when we get to chapter 2, having begun to have lost some sensitivity to sin and grace, the Colossian church is becoming vulnerable. Vulnerable for being wooed to go looking for a better Jesus. A Jesus who is being plugged by the vain philosophies and empty deceits. And so Paul's reminder here in verse 21 is meant to restore some sensitivity to sin and then grace. And you who once were. Now what was it that they once were? Notice how Paul puts it. There's three things. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds. Notice that, first off, they were once alienated. They were once estranged. They were once distanced from one another, for sure, but especially isolated from God. So much so that they were, as he goes on to say, hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. Now, you know that the New Testament, most of you know that the New Testament was written in Greek, an old Koine Greek from 2,000 years ago, and that Greek word for mind, dianoia, actually has a bigger texture to it than we think of when we think of mind. I think there's a pun in there somewhere. But anyways, it has more to it than what we think of when we think of mind. I appreciate how the New American Standard translated it as attitude. Both mind and attitude get at the bigness of this Greek word, dionia, or dianoia, sorry. So it includes both the deliberative, the deliberative, but also the dispositional, the way you lean. So how you think and the way you lean, the deliberative and the dispositional. Hostile in your deliberativeness and hostile in your disposition. Our intellectual abilities and our inclinations were all set up and used in hostile ways toward God. We thought about it being hostile. We leaned in that way. We knee-jerk reacted in a way that was hostile to God. It was our deliberation and our disposition, hostile in mind. Seditious, insubordinate, disloyal, and disobedient in all of our devices and desires. Alienated and hostile in mind. And notice that. We were alienated. How did we get alienated? And then Paul begins to point out it was a self-inflicted alienation, being hostile in mind. And then comes the third one. To make sure everyone gets it, he points out that the internal revolt of alienation and hostility in mind and deliberation and disposition, that the internal revolt, alienated and hostile in mind, made them active rebels doing evil deeds. Do you hear it? The internal and the external. The disposition and the deliberation often feed the deed. The deliberation and disposition often feed the deed. From inside to outside, Paul is saying, the fabric was ripped. The relationship had been damaged beyond repair. Why? Because... To paraphrase what he's saying here, we see, we perceive, we reason, we react, and we perform from a place of hostility, alienated and hostile in mind to doing evil deeds. Now, my friends, that's a very simple way. Verse 21 is a very simple way to talk about total depravity. Not as bad as we could be, but bad or evil or thinking Hostile thoughts against God in every aspect of us, whether it's mental or whether it's our inclinations and reactions and actions and so forth. Not as bad as we could be, but every part of us is in revolt. Every part of us is in revolt. And what do you do with rebels and insurgents who persist in rebelliousness and insurgency? Well, they die. So we die, we will die if we continue down this road as rebels and insurgents justly deserving 
the judicial demise of rebels and insurgents. That's where Paul begins. You need to remember where you came from. Now, some of you sitting here may have grown up in the church. You may have believed in Jesus from the first. You may not have ever known a time in which you didn't have faith in Jesus. And verse 21 may sound and feel a little foreign and unreal to you. But you see this alienation and hostility of mind doing evil deeds surfacing even in you. It rings true in all of us. It normally comes out very clearly when we fall flat on our faces with our arms crossed in prudish, pugnacious self-righteousness. Oh, that's alienating. That's actually thinking I'm the captain of my own ship. That's hostile in mind. And it's an evil deed. Right? And so this, this prudish, pugnacious self-righteousness. Why, I never, we used to say in Mississippi, why, I never, sure you did. Right? You see it coming out there. You see it when all of a sudden, maybe there's a downright moral failure and you almost will always say it. I've heard it. I, I knew better. How did I get there? Right? We all struggle with this. It's in every one of us. Alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds. We need to recognize and remember where we came from. Because when you don't recognize where you came from, you don't appreciate where where you've come to. That's important. That's what Paul's doing here. But Jesus comes in. He comes in to do the impossible by means of the impossible reconciling us rebels and insurgents to God. And this is the first part of verse 22. Listen to how he puts it. Go from verse 21 to verse 22. You and you who once were, he has now. Did you hear it? You who once were, he has now. That should ring your bells. He has once now, or he is now. You who once were, he has now. Oh, the suddenness, the surprise of his, he has now. Here it is. God in the flesh, in in his body of flesh, enters into the realm of his rebellious creation. Enters into the realm of his rebellious creation and creatures. He enters into, throws himself into the swarming teeming pool of revolutionaries and insurgents. He comes from the outside into the inside to do what? To disperse us, to arrest us, to haul us away? No, to pointedly take us and to bring us in peace. That was verse 20. And he does this here, verse 22, by his death. Now, this is the death of the one whom we heard back in verse 18 is the firstborn from the dead. So when you hear By his death, you should also be thinking resurrection. Oh, the impossible. I mean, nobody comes back from the grave, you know what I mean? That's impossible. By means of the impossible, death and resurrection. He did the impossible. What was the impossible? He rescued rebels and insurgents and drew us in and made us family. He did the impossible by the impossible. So to do the impossible work of reconciling us rebels and insurgents, he does the impossible, he dives deep into our doom, into our damnation, 
into our death. To do what? To rise up. Body, blood, bones, toenails and hair, no longer subject to misery or mortality. He rises up to bring us into the family, to reconcile us. And now, because of what he did, we who once were on the outs with God, we who once were hostile inwardly and outwardly toward God, we who did deeds of open revolt that rightly and equitably deserve doom and damnation and death. He has reconciled us. This is what you heard in the call to worship. Listen again. God has shown his love for us. And that while we were still, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Oh, but Paul goes on. Since therefore we have been justified, put on God's good side, justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, which we all deserved. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Dear friends, when the Christian life goes flat, Look for some loss of sensitivity, verse 21, or grace, verse 22. Not remembering where we came from. We don't appreciate where we've been brought to. When the Christian life goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity or grace. And the Colossian Christians seem to be losing their grip on what Jesus had done for them. And thus, when you get to chapter 2, they are becoming susceptible to the Jesuses being put on offer by the elemental spirits of the world with all of their vain philosophies and empty deceits. But Paul here is refreshing their sensitivity to sin and grace. Maybe, maybe, in all of our defense of Scripture and of the Gospel accounts, with especially our adult children or teenage children or our parents that have grown up and maybe they are starting to have problems with being Christians or maybe our friends or maybe fellow church members, maybe instead of going at them with arguments showing our superior intellect, maybe we need to do what Paul starts out with here. Maybe we need to come back to we once were and he has now. Maybe we need to go back to the sensitivity of sin and grace. Before we get into all those wonderful arguments, start with Jesus and the gospel and why the gospel was essential. Why what Jesus did was utterly essential. So my friends, Jesus has reconciled us. But notice he didn't reconcile us to cut us loose. To allow us to run aimlessly wild in the wilderness to poke our eyeballs out with tree limbs as we run through the forest, you know, crazy-like. He didn't allow us. That's not what he reconciled us for. He reconciled us with an aim. He reconciled us to redirect us. And this is the rest of verse 22. And you see the redirection in those three words that are redirection language. In order to. He reconciled us through the body of his, of his flesh through death in order to. 
Here's the redirection. In order to. Jesus did the impossible. By means of the impossible, he reconciled us through his death and resurrection in order to redirect us. I mean, if we're on that, to quote the old song that I grew up with, if we were on the highway to hell, then the redirection is good news. And so the opposite of being alienated in a hostile mind doing evil deeds is holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The opposite of alienated in a hostile mind doing evil deeds is holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. The redirection. Maybe this will help you out. If it doesn't, it's going to be a fun story anyways, because it's embarrassing. So my mom has this yellowing old photo. I mean, it's a genuine photo, y'all. I mean, it's a real photo, right? So I remember the camera she took it with. She has this yellowing old photo that she's got shoved somewhere in all of her stash of other pictures. It used to be in dad's, dad used to have a leather suitcase and they would shove all the pictures in there. And now um, it, they're around the house somewhere. They're moving. It's like they got legs. She has this wonderful yellowing picture and it's a picture of me. As a little freckle-faced boy and uh, with a burr haircut. And there I am, all dressed up in this white shirt with these suspenders and this cool, I mean awesome, clip-on bow tie. It was a little black clip-on bow tie, right? It's a great picture. Now, you look at the picture. She did this for Easter. It It was in my Easter best. And so it was an Easter picture. You look at the picture and you think, oh, isn't he cute? No, the reality was, this is, I didn't dress up myself. I'll have you know, if you didn't know this, I was one of Dee's nightmares in school. You know, I'd be one of her kids at school that would constantly be going, you know. I, I didn't dress myself. Mom dressed me up. That means mom had to put her hand on my shoulder and get my little wriggling, writhing, rambunctious, boyish body to stop so she could get me dressed up so that she could make me presentable before her. Hopefully in that statement you hear all kinds of love and warmth in that description. She dressed me up and then we had our Easter picture and it was taken. And there's more to the story. Clearly it didn't last long. I squirmed so much that the shirt tails came popping out and the bow tie came unclipped and was dangling like this and I went off to go play in the dirt. So it didn't last very long. But when I see the picture, I remember the rest of the story that most people don't get to see. My friends, something like that Easter picture, that yellowing Easter picture, is what's going on in this passage, is a, is a portrayal of this redirection. Our Lord is dressing us up. Our Lord is cleaning us up. Our Lord is setting us before Him to make us presentable. That he may present you wholly blameless and above reproach before him. My friends, there's all kinds of love and warmth and pleasure and satisfaction in that statement. It's already begun, but the big day is coming. When it will all be made right and made so real, more real than we ever could have imagined. And we will be blown away. Does anybody know what it is to live holy, blameless, and above reproach? Anybody? 
I have no idea. And we'll be there. Finally, one day, really holy, blameless, and above reproach. Our problem is that right now in the present, we've spent many days and many nights, many weeks and many months, many years and many decades living alienated, hostile of mind, doing evil deeds. Which means we have a lot of learned habit, habits and inclinations and things and reactions and all of those things. But now, now that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, verse 13, now that we have been reconciled in His body of flesh by death, we're not sure how to live and love and how to work and walk. And so He has to work us over, and I mean that in the best possible way. He has to work us over. He has to work on us. He has to work in us in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Before him. We're like Israel out in the wilderness. Free, free, free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. To give a tip of the hat to Martin Luther King Jr. But that was Israel in the wilderness. Free! And they had no idea how to live like free people. Meandering around through the wilderness with all of this newfound freedom... But they kept on thinking and kept on acting and kept on reacting like slaves, like hostages from the inside out. And that's us. It's like the woman I know came out of a difficult situation that she'd been in for years and years and years. And then when this person who caused all the trouble, when he begins to talk to her, she immediately goes into self-defense mode and hunkers down into despair and so forth and she and I were talking about it. I said, why'd you do that? I mean, you're free. You're out of that relationship. I don't know. It's like there are ruts worn in my soul. And I fall into these ruts as soon as that person does that. That statement is made. I just fall into this rut. That's us, my friends. But here's some good news. Jesus is working on us and in us. He is working out in us this newfound freedom. And one day, one day, all of our hostage mindset and all of our slave mentality with all of the learned habits and reactions and alienations and hostilities of deliberation and disposition and evil deeds, one day it will all be cast aside and disposed of forever. And since our Lord will not stop working on us and stop, will not stop working in us, then we are assured that he will one day, by grace alone, make us utterly holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's good news. But for now, we must be resistant and grow resilient. And that's verse 23. And you need to understand verse 23, not in theological arguments between Arminians and Calvinists. You need to understand verse 23 in the context of Colossians. You see, the pressure is on. The pressure is on these Christians, and even on us, 
to let it all slip. That's why Paul will say, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, etc., etc. The pressure is on to let it all slip. To be like Israel in the wilderness, who is free but can't see what it means to be free. To turn around and head back to Egypt. Did you hear what Israel said in the wilderness? I mean, the inanity of it. Listen again. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out here into the land of liberty. You have brought us out here set free, rescuing us, no longer hostages, no longer slaves. You brought us out here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, that we were able to live again in the known and what we were used to and what we've experienced most of our life of all the habits, food and plenty, personal peace and affluence or whatever. Do you hear the mindset there? It's a slave mind. That's comfortable. I know that way of life. You've set me free. I ain't got no clue what this is like out here and I'm scared to death that I'm going to starve to death out here because I'm so insecure. Are you picking this up? Okay. That's where we live. And the pressure is on to do that, to go back to Egypt. The pressure is on, on these Colossian believers, to go back to what they grew up with. The vain philosophies and empty deceits and elemental spirits of the world with all of their moral codes of handle not, taste not, touch not, and so forth. The pressure is on us to take our arms and slip them into the arms of these pygmy Jesuses that are being offered to us by those who would delude you with plausible arguments to go along, to get along. And so Paul, after announcing who the real Jesus is, verses 15 through 20, who the real Jesus is regarding creation, conciliation, Course and communion. That was last week. And what he has done for us now, verse 21 through 23, regarding our rebellion by bringing about reconciliation for the purpose of redirection, what Paul wants them to do and he wants us to do is to grow some resistance. Not resistance to God. The resistance to the elemental spirits of the world, the vain philosophies and empty deceits. What Paul wants them and us to do is to grow some meaty, muscular, beefy, brawny resilience. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What Paul is doing is at least in my mind, what Paul is doing here in this verse 23 is like this scene in the gladiator. If you never saw the gladiator, that's okay. I love the gladiator. Russell Crowe plays Maximus, and it's in the early part of this campaign. There's Marcus Aurelius over there and all that stuff. And so Maximus goes and gets on his horse and goes out to his cal- cavalry. They're out in the woods somewhere, getting ready for this to, to uh, finish off this combat scene. There's the foot soldiers and artillery over there, but here's the cavalry, the back of the woods. And Marcus Aurelius is, I mean, uh, Maximus is over there and he's got his uh, combat dog, his, his war dog with him. He's on his horse 
And he cheers on the cavalry. He says, this is the way it's going to be, and if we die, this is it, and that's okay. But All this pep talk. And then it's time. And they're all charging. He has them charged, and they're all charging. And all the way through, there's his dog running next to him. His sword is up. He's all geared out. And they're going against the enemy. And he tells them all the time, as they're heading that way, Hold the line! Hold the line! So they can come in as one line and mow down the enemy. Now that phrase is not unique to a movie gladiator. That's what was said more often than not in the Civil War. World War I and World War II, Paul is saying to us in verse 23, hold the line. The pressure's on to slip and slide. Hold the line. And that's verse 23. So Paul is cheering us on to do the same. Now this hope of the gospel that they've heard is all about God's world rescue operation, which has been proclaimed in all creation of heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, of which we will hear more next week when we look at verse 24 to the end of the chapter. But let's finish this and tie this up. Beginning, my friends, with verse 15, Paul is showing us the deep-rooted turf that is under our feet so that we can get on with the gospel. But Paul is also using what's stated here in verses 15 through 23 as a template by which he will critique all of the troubles over in chapter 2. When you get done with 15 through 23, you should be able to say, this isn't any pygmy Jesus. This isn't any pygmy Jesus. And once you come to this Jesus, gripped, by who he is and what he has done, it sets you free from pygmy Christianity. And it sets you on a program for big-boned, strong-backed maturity. That's where Paul's headed, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This Jesus is the soil that we're planted in filled with the nutrients so that we can grow up bountiful. So chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. My friends, I hope you keep some of this in mind because it just so happens that today when we have our confession of faith, guess what we're using for our confession of faith? This passage. This time, I hope when you say those words, you go, yeah, this ain't no pygmy Jesus, and I believe him. Secondly, we need to acknowledge our own inner and outer disposition and deliberations. We really all are, even now, still prone to be alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We need to own up to that and recognize that. But we also need to become enraptured again with Jesus. He has now. Oh yeah, He has reconciled us. But not only Jesus, He is now, but also our Lord's in order to to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. Lastly, we also must gratefully enjoy the fact that our Lord has directed us and is going to do is going to be, it's going to be 
marvelous one day when he fully has us all dressed up and he presents us before him. And so stop wriggling, y'all. Stop wriggling about and instead with both hands and whole hearts embrace what he is doing with you and doing in you. And in that, become resistant to the beckoning voices wooing you and resilient, be resilient in him. When the Christian life goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin or grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful. You did the impossible. You took us squirming away from you isolated from you, running from you. You took us who didn't like you, didn't want to have anything to do with you. You took us who struck out at you, who swore at you. You took us, and in your Son, Jesus, you made us at peace with you, and you made us family with you. For that, Lord, we are grateful. But you didn't just do that. You also, through your son Jesus, you are presenting us holy, blameless, and above reproach before you. And that's amazing. We pray, come Lord Jesus, hasten the day. And until that day, Lord, we pray that you would fill us and help us to build up resilience and resistance to rejoice in you, to remember where we came from so that we can appreciate where you have brought us to. In Jesus' name, amen.